Welcome to Wise Health for Women Radio with Linda Prater. Women are pressed daily to give more, learn more, and be more, often at the expense of mind, body, or spirit. Each week with intriguing guests and topics, we'll bring you fresh ways to view your limited time, encouraging a shift to new, healthier perspectives. Wise Health for Women Radio, helping women thrive. And now here's your host, Linda Prater. Good morning and welcome to Wise Health for Women Radio. We are really pleased with the show we're going to bring you today. We're always impressed by our guests and learn so much. And I'm just so blessed to constantly run into people who have so much to offer and who are genuine and authentic in the way that they do it. Today we're going to be talking with Dr. Deb Butler. She's a former chiropractor, but now she's a full-time life and weight loss coach. And this came about, and I'll let her tell her story, but she has an amazing way of helping people figure out what it is that makes them overeat, what the brain does when it receives certain foods, and how to proactively manage your way through each phase of your life, especially as you get later in life where it seems like our physiology changes completely. So we are going to be talking with Deb Butler today, and welcome. We are delighted to have you on the show. Thank you, Linda. I'm delighted to be here. (laughs) I'm thrilled because I think that one of the things that I really enjoyed about what I learned about you Mm -hmm. is that you evolved in your career. And maybe you could tell us a little bit of the backstory behind how you came to be a chiropractor, and then shifted into this full-time weight loss coaching and and why life coaching is so important to you and to others. Mm -hmm. It's such a good question. And I love doing interviews because it makes me have to go back in my life and and think about why I did what I did. (laughs) And, you know, it's like kind of talking, like, I feel like I'm my future self when you ask me to go back and talk about my former self. Mm -hmm. So much information. But, you know, I I became a chiropractor really because if you really want to know the truth, I became a chiropractor because my husband was going to school to become a chiropractor. And he came home one day and he said, you know what? You would really be good at this. I think you should do it with me. (laughs) Mm. That's wonderful. Well, yeah, it was wonderful because I thought like I really had no interest in science at the time and um, I was in early childhood education and I really wanted to do something more and different and had no idea what it was. And it was when that came up, I started speaking with women who were becoming chiropractors and I always had a tendency towards natural health. Mm-hmm. And it was something that evolved, but it evolved more, if I would say it honestly now, it evolved more because of what I think I sh- that I should be doing something. My husband thinks it would be good. And um, so I did it for a lot of reasons other than something that was my actual heart's desire. Really if interesting. I it. Mm-hmm. But as you got into it, were you drawn to the anatomy, the physiology? Because every chiropractor that I have ever spoken with is enthralled with this magnificent body that we're given. You know what? I learned so much. And yes, I, I could, you know, once I learned all the anatomy and physiology, it really became like, wow, what a miracle. And probably the biggest thing was when we were in cadaver lab. Lab, and there were so many people that go, Oh my gosh, I can't work on cadavers. Mm-hmm. But I found it fascinating. 
mm-hmm. to be able to see the way that, I mean, every single body was basically the same on the inside, mm-hmm. every single body. And, you know, when you learn about all that stuff, you realize that we all function basically the same on the inside and that there is a connection in our bodies that makes us all function. And I think chiropractic came in because the idea of allowing the body to do what it does best without any interference. Well, you're bringing up a very strong point, which is that if you take a look at a lot of different types of medicine, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things thrown at the issues at hand. There are a lot of pharmaceuticals. There are a lot of supplements. There are a lot of other things. But the body alignment and the way we're put together mm. really has a form and function on how we feel. And I know that you know, there's, there's varying ideas about body alignment and osteopathy and yeah. chiropractic and all of that. But having experienced it myself, I, I know that there have been times when stress or injury has pushed you out of where you should be. And when you're not physically feeling good, mentally usually begins to drop as well. And because you're fighting a battle with yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I really learned as a chiropractor more than anything else is that when you take care of this precious body of yours in the best way that you know how. And what I learned over years of working on bodies is that the very best thing that you can do for your body on a regular basis is feed it proper nutrition. (laughs) It's true. That you can do, you know, um, that food really is your medicine. Mm -hmm. If you want to have a healthy body, it's the easiest way to become proactive is just what are you going to put in your mouth and I think that's something that people are beginning to understand a lot more all of the talk of processed foods you know the Mm -hmm. food that is closer to how God made it is healthier for you I think though that we get wrapped around food um, in an emotional way not just a physical way you hear hear people saying I live to eat or I eat to live And there are folks who really do feel in one camp or the other Mm -hmm. when if you're closely aligned with and self-aware, you you tend to find food to be a wonderful, um, I don't want to say reward. You find food to be just an integral part of your day, but not the most important part of your day. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because if I were to be honest, and that's what I'm doing with you today. Yeah, please do. We only like honest people on this show. (laughs) I was a chiropractor for 30 years, and I would say to you, honestly, with all the information that I had, that I still lived to eat. Okay. And that is why I had a weight problem is because I knew what I was supposed to be eating and I knew what fed my body. But I still had this deal with my own weight Mm -hmm. and what to do with food and where to put it. And it really wasn't until I was in my 50s of going up and down 20 to 30 pounds for 30 years. I figured I lost about 250 pounds in my lifetime that I got introduced to life coaching, weight coaching, and also, you know, what it would be that I would specialize with women to help them 
And what I came up with, because it's what I needed the most amount of help with, was how to manage my own mind Mm-hmm. around food so that I could start using food as medicine and not using food as my basic entertainment. And that's a very critical point because we lead very, very busy lives these days yes, and we, we zoom around. And so we think we can just grab this and it won't matter because it's really, you're, you're eating that sugary granola bar, but it's not a real meal. So it's okay. It equalizes and people justify eating these types of foods when it really is simple, if you are intentional about it, mm-hmm. to shift into a healthier style. But I want to go back to the point you made earlier, which I think is a, sort of a grounding point for this particular episode of our show. Mm-hmm. And, and that is that we have a basis that we rely upon for food and that healthy way of eating is truly a good way to live your life and that it's healthier. And so a lot of our over desire, our cravings are created in the brain. And I love the way the brain science works along with the nutrition that we're learning. Mm -hmm. And yes, we will continue to learn that this is good for you. This is now not good for you. This is bad for you, but it was good at one point. And we were all very confused at some point with Mm -hmm. nutrition, but brain science and being able to shift it, healthy weight and, and health in general starts from within. Would you agree with that? Well, of course I would agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) It absolutely does. But I will tell you what, we live in a culture, and you can call it whatever you want, of food science. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason that we have such an obese society is because the foods that are being processed and the way that what it's creating in our own brains that's making us feel like we're eating against our own control. Because I work with really, really brilliant smart women who absolutely believe with all of their hearts they cannot control themselves around food. They know what to eat. That's not the problem. They know. You know, I I find that people do know what to eat, but I find fewer people who are willing to take the time to buy the right foods and to create meals that take away the craving part of things because if you I, I for example I yeah. cook on Sundays so yeah. that I have things to take to work and to eat when I get home so that I don't grab something that isn't as healthy and people say well you've got that discipline and I think well I didn't always mm-hmm. and it, it isn't that hard but where do you help and we're going to come up on a break and so we'll continue this after it how do you talk to people about changing their mindset so that they do want to do this and gain success in really taking the very small amount of time it takes to create healthier options for themselves in terms of eating and to to make it more challenging to eat the unhealthy. Yeah, I just I think that it really has to do with changing our brains and our minds the way that we think about ourselves. Because, you know, I work with menopausal women Mm -hmm. and the way they've been thinking up until this age is really getting in the way of their own self-care. 
Well, self-care up until maybe two years ago was something you'd get eye rolls on. And you really would. I work with a lot of caregivers, um, both in the military space and in the civilian space. And Uh so time is crunched. Um, They don't make themselves a priority. And they really do have many plates spinning in the air. But we are going to go on a break. And when we come back, let's talk about the importance of nutrition and cognition and why we would like to eliminate some of that brain fog and be more clear in our thinking and our purposes. We'll take a short break and we'll be back. We're talking with Dr. Debbie Butler today. We're Wise Health for Women Radio and we'll return after these short messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Did you know that the average teenager drinks twice as much soda as milk? Since 1983, sugar consumption in the U.S. is up 28%. Why is that? There are several reasons, but one of the most common is soft drinks. 20-ounce beverages have become the norm, and it's not surprising to find that 43% of our sugar comes from drinks. Sugar is blamed for poor nutritional diets. USDA data shows that people whose diets are high in added sugar eat less calcium, fiber, iron, protein, and many other important nutrients. Fat-free foods are also a culprit. Since sugar is fat-free, many people tend to think it's okay to eat as much as they want. Remember that just because a food is fat-free does not mean that it's calorie-free also. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. When you are making New Year's resolutions, or any goal for that matter, it's important to keep it simple. Many times we set insurmountable goals that are impossible to reach. So consequently, we get discouraged, feel like a failure, and quit. By setting impossible goals, we invite failure. So instead of setting goals that are tough to reach... Keep it simple. If you need to lose 40 pounds, start by making a goal to lose 10 pounds. After you lose 10 pounds, set another goal to lose the next 10 pounds, and so on. Before you know it, you will have lost all that weight and met your goal. The same is true with exercise. If you're only exercising three days a week, increase it to four days a week. Then add another day every two weeks. The next thing you know, you'll be exercising every day. Keep it simple and stick with it. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Welcome back. We are talking with Dr. Deb Butler today about nutrition and our brains and how to proactively work to stay healthy in the second half of our lives, which is often the most interesting, intriguing time of our lives too. And as you go through life, you find that you can't control your genetics. Your your health that way is somewhat predetermined. You can't control life stressors. Those come and go regularly. But the one thing we can do to extend our lives or keep the quality of life so high is to look at the nutrition that we feed our brains and bodies with. And it's, it's very interesting. So before the break, I asked you a question about how do you help shift the brain from 
living to eat to eating to live? Mm -hmm. It's such a good question. And one of the things that I do with my clients on a regular basis is that we, as we start changing the foods that we start putting in our bodies, we start charting the physiology of our bodies, like the symptoms. So we start charting how we're sleeping. We start charting our energy. We start charting if there's blood pressure issues. And we see what happens over time as we start taking certain foods out of our body and start putting really specific, delicious, good, healthy foods back in our bodies, what happens to the physiology of our bodies and what happens to the actual psychology of our brains. Mm -hmm. And you know what happens overall to almost every single person that I work with is that their thinking gets clearer their symptoms that they've had from aching in their spines and knees and all the kinds of things that people that are 50 and over sometimes talk about a lot uh-huh. goes away. And just by changing what you're eating, nothing else. And I think when we were when we were younger, we thought that we could get away with anything. So, you know, we could just we stay could. Up- I, well, you know, we could like stay up all night and um, study. Right, <laughs> right, right. And Lots not of coffee. Yep. Yeah, not sleep for a day. And oh, so what? Or unfortunately, or fortunately for me, I thought I could drink alcohol like who knows what and live to tell the tale. And now, you know, I have a little bit and it's like, oh, that's enough. Right. But it's that type of stuff, the way it works in our brains is if we believe we could do that, then it's still in our own brains that we still have the same thinking that we can keep doing it. Or I'll have a lot of people say to me, how come I can't do what I used to do? As if that was a bad thing. And most of the things that they're talking about were things where they were mistreating their bodies and getting away with it. Well, I think that we don't become wise unless we're first young and foolish. So (laughs) I I think that those are things that are are important. I also think you made a very good point when you said, look at what you're eating and how you're feeling. I think sometimes we are such a society that expects immediacy. Okay, if I've had a day of, of eating healthy, I'm supposed to feel awesome. But you didn't get that way over a day you clearly came to want to eat more healthy or to feel better or to lose the brain fog um, or to stop fighting the cravings or whatever it may be that is bothering you. Mm-hmm. You didn't get there overnight. And so we, we do have to move to a point of more patience, I would think. I know I did for myself. It was, it was funny. An outside event actually caused me to change one way of my eating is I, my oven broke. And so I, and I didn't have the, you know, cash flow to buy a new oven immediately. And it was summertime and I grow a lot of my vegetables and things. And I moved to a more plant-based diet. I felt amazing. I didn't cut out meat. I still ate, but not, not the way I had been. And I laughed because I didn't replace that oven for five years. Ah. (laughs) And, and it's so funny because I, I still eat a more plant-based diet, mm-hmm. um, but, I, but it's nothing special. I mean, I can go out and eat anything and it's fine, but I, I laugh because sometimes it's a practical thing that pushes you into a different um, eating style. 
But I do think the fast-paced society and the, the pressure to grab prepared meals has people very confused because they put them on the television and radio as, quote, healthy alternatives or use this as a meal replacement yeah. or blah, blah, blah. It's marketing. Let's face it. Mm-hmm. But and, and we're not sitting here saying, please eat all the you know things you don't like and you'll feel great. That's not what we're saying. But we are saying that how you fuel that one and only precious body you have does give you either a step up in the aging process or a step back. You're absolutely right about that. And there is no doubt about it that when you get to 50 and beyond, it becomes even more important. But here's the thing is that if most of your life or you've been seeking pleasure in all the wrong places, let's just say, right? So if we're talking about fast food or we're talking about things with a lot of sugar in it, the effect that that kind of stuff has on the brain is it's pure pleasure. It's that dopamine that's being released in huge amounts. And that is instant pleasure, Uh instant. Right. And so our brains get very, very used to getting that instant pleasure. And then if you try to stop doing that, the brain starts kind of going a little crazy. Uh-huh. And we call it like urges, you know, an urge is really just your brain seeking quick pleasure. Uh-huh. And if you've been doing that for a long time and then decide, oh, I think I want to change the way I eat. Don't think it's going to be comfortable. That's an important message. I wish you would elaborate on that because tell people what that looks like. Tell people that, okay, if you're having these things, um, you know, foggy thinking, you, you drag with energy, you fuel yourself up with coffee, and then uh, maybe take a Excedrin PM at night. Tell how you will feel when you start cutting back on certain things or adding good nutrition. I'm, I'm I just really think people need a picture painted because sometimes we don't identify with it unless you describe just exactly how I felt or other women feel. Yes. Well, for sure. And I think it's really important that we realize that if we want to change what we put in our bodies, if what we've been putting in our bodies is a lot of processed foods, flour and sugar, our brains are set up for quick pleasure. And if you want to change that, you have to be prepared for how it's going to feel inside of you, which is your brain is going to be begging you, begging you to feed it something quick and fast. Uh And that feels very uncomfortable. So if you walk past chocolate chip cookies and you've always thought to yourself, those are my favorite foods and I can't resist them. That's what you think. And then you eat it and you get this huge dopamine effect. You're almost wired to continue to do that. And if you've been Uh doing it for 20 to 30 years, you're really wired to want to continue doing that. And then let's say you decide, okay, I'm going to stop. <laughs> but that's what people tend to do. It's either all or nothing. Correct. And there is a step down process that you can do as well. Yeah, there's a step down process that you can do. But I guess more than anything is you have to be prepared to be somewhat uncomfortable and not make it mean that there's something wrong or that you should go back and eat the other way. 
Okay, so how do you counsel folks who say, all right, I've done this for a week. I I want that chocolate chip cookie so badly that I'm dreaming about it. Mm-hmm. You know, help me. What do I need next? Well, what I usually talk about is this term called over-desire. Okay. And over-desire or desire by itself is really just a feeling that you feel. Mm-hmm. And the feeling of desire feels like it's something that must be taken care of immediately. We can call it an urge. We can call it desire. We can call it over desire. Mm -hmm. And if what you've been doing over a long period of time is giving into that desire with sugar, then that is what is being created. So what I'll usually tell clients is if you decide not to give into that urge for the first time, it's going to be like a screaming toddler. Like if you ever remember going to the grocery store with children. Oh no, never remember that. No, (laughs) I can't forget it. But you know, neither can I. and, And screaming for candy. And then you give in and you give them the candy. Every time they go to the store, what do you think they're going to want? And what do you, how do you think they're going to try to get it? Mm-hmm. And the brain works just like that. If that's the way the brain's been, you know, you've been feeding the brain with that kind of stuff and getting these huge dopamine releases, and then you stop it, the brain is going to be like a screaming toddler. It's going to be screaming for the chocolate chip cookies. And the only way to stop it is to not reward it. That's an excellent analogy. And because when I say, you know, paint a picture for what this is going to feel like. You just painted one. So in terms of practical tips, do you then tell people to go uh, take a walk, for example, when they have that craving? Do you tell them to substitute the desire with a reward of a different type? I mean, what are some of the things that you would tell people to do? Because fighting through that Mm -hmm. is not possible for some without complete handholding and and someone standing right there beside them to walk them through each day, at least in the beginning. But once they get it, I think successes breed further successes. So how do you break that stranglehold of that sugar craving in your brain? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I prepare them for what's going to happen. And the second thing is, is really, I would prefer not to distract them with doing something different before they, because most of the people who are overeating and giving in to urges are not comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. Ah, okay. All right. And so at least that was my problem is I ate and used food because I didn't want to feel half the negative feelings that I was feeling. And there's nothing worse than having a desire or an urge that feels like it must be Uh, taking care of immediately and then not doing it. But once you can get through it one time and realize that you could sit with this discomfort and be able to just say to yourself, if I can do this, it'll be easier the next time. It's almost like talking back to your brain. Well, that is a perfect segue for what I want to talk about in the next segment. We're coming up on another break. I think the self-awareness and the self-kindness is so very important as as you are going through any change to be compassionate to yourself and to be realistic in what your goals may be. So we have a short break. We're talking to Dr. Deb Butler, and we'll be back after these short messages. Stay tuned.
We're Wise Health for Women Radio, and we'll return after these short messages. It's merging Did Scotch tape originate in Scotland? Nope. The popular gift wrapping tape was actually developed right here in the United States. In 1926, the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company, 3M, was being a bit rapacious, trying to save a little scratch or money, and started using a cheaper adhesive on their sticky tape. A Detroit automaker ordered some of this newer, cheaper tape to use for spray-painting auto bodies. But the automaker complained because the tape was scotch, a politically incorrect word that meant cheap or stingy. While the tape didn't have the adhesion to satisfy the automaker, it was hardly a Jifu jet. That's an unnecessary thing. It had many other uses, as we all know. So the tape was kept in production, and the name Scotch just stuck. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and for more Words You Never Heard, check out my podcast at wordsyouneverheard.com. It's words you never well known in medical practices that patients tend to lie about their health habits. They lie about how much they smoke, understate how much they drink or eat, and overstate how much they exercise. What's another word for those little white lies we like to tell in the examination room? Teradiddles. Doctors have a rule of thumb. Whatever the patient says they're drinking, smoking, or eating, multiply it by two. But it's hard to come clean about your habits when you know you're in for some jobation from the doctor. That's criticism we don't want to hear. If physicians want us to be honest with them, I suggest they try being a little less judgmental and use a little suaviloquence. That's soothing, encouraging talk. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Deb Butler. And on the break, we were talking about the need for self-awareness and kindness to oneself when you're going through these changes. And, you know, I, I mean, I will use myself as an example. I once had a sweet tooth the size of Montana. <laughs> and I realized at one point that I really lived for those sugary rushes and things. And I didn't like it. And so I wanted to stop it. And in my case, I did it cold turkey. I just cut sugar out, you know, for a period of time. Mm-hmm. But at the end of that period of time, I no longer had the sugar cravings. And now, though I still have a sweet tooth, I'm perfectly satisfied with, you know, a single chocolate chip cookie, since that's what we were talking about before, mm-hmm. um, or a small dessert that's shared with someone else. But I no longer had the craving. And I think that's the, the small successes that we were talking about before. I'm not, I'm not telling people to do it the way I did it. It just worked for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I used to be the kind of person who could eat icing out of a can. No uh-huh. kidding. Mm-hmm. And talk about a sugar rush. My goodness. Yeah. Um, seriously. But that was not healthy. And I knew that was not healthy. And so I just talk a little bit about the fact that Having self-awareness, knowing when it feels like too much, when you don't like the way you feel about things, that you you can change it, but that it is going to take a period of time. In my case, it took over 30 days. 
Oh, at least. Mm -hmm. I, I think, yeah. But I think, you know, like what I'll usually tell people is expect to a little bit of misery. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and but, you know, I don't think you I don't want you to be surprised by it. Because right. really, most people that come to me are already miserable. They're miserable because they feel like they can't control themselves around food. They feel like they can't honor their own commitments to themselves. And they feel like there's something wrong with them. And so to me, it's like if you start treating yourself better and you start choosing foods that are going to make you feel better, but you're also going to have these strong urges that your brain has been used to fulfilling, if you're ready for it and you can expect it, but no that the misery that you're going to go through is not the 20 to 30 years that you've been going through. That's so true. And, and let me insert in here something that just came to Please. mind, Please. which is that I think a lot of saboteurs of these new you know, habits that we'd like to do yeah. end up being friends and family members. And I'll give you an example. My daughter, we ate very healthy growing up and I raised my children that way too. Uh -huh. But, mm -hmm as she got into her 20s and was on business trips with people, they would make fun of her for not eating the airport food. And she had packed, you know, a, a little bag full of things that were healthy and she would mm -hmm. munch on those instead because she just didn't even have the taste for it or want it. And I said to her, you're, you're living a healthy life and you feel good. They're <laughs> they wish they could do what you could do yeah. and, and they can, but they don't. But talk a bit about sometimes the naysayers or those that throw up hurdles to your getting healthier because it puts the mirror on them. Well, I think that is um, it's such a good point to bring up because one of the things that I think women deal with all the time is wanting approval from other people, period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that when they start doing things that are right for them, which means I have a lot of people that will say, oh, somebody made something for me or I went out to dinner and they cooked this and I had to eat it. <laughs> well, sometimes that's true. Well, no, actually, I, I don't think it's ever true. I don't think you ever have to eat anything. And I don't think you have to actually please somebody else if it's not going to fuel your own body. I think it's very easy to say, no, thank you, or I'm not hungry, but totally appreciate whatever that person is doing for you without having to do something that's not going to be aligned with your own body. Yes. What I meant was, oh. I think sometimes you do have to taste whatever it is, but I, what I taught my children later on is um, when that oh. happens at a big dinner is you say, oh, thank you, and take a very small serving and then say, it's not my favorite, as uh, opposed to, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. But then I also think about like uh, children and babies, and it's like if you ever try to give them something and they don't want it, mm -hmm. they don't eat it. No, they don't. And um, I don't think anybody gets offended. So I think there's just, I know that there's this really fine line because I know what you're talking about too. Yeah, it's a social thing. It's a, yeah, but it, for a lot of people, it's a little too much of a social thing and they're mm -hmm. too afraid of hurting people's feelings and not honoring their own. I think it's the only thing that I'm bringing up. No, no, I think both points are, are valid. I think one thing that has always struck me is that when you look back at the science, let's, let's circle back to science again, yeah. that 
your thinking and your cognition, when they look at brains of people who are overweight versus those who are leaner, there is an aging factor and a cognition decline if you are overweight. So in addition to being healthier and not putting extra strain on your knees if you're overweight or um, your heart or all of the things that you normally think of when you Mm -hmm. think of being overweight, Mm -hmm. I don't know that people really think about the fact that their brain science changes as well. There's more white matter in a brain of someone who is overweight versus someone who is leaner. Oh, it's so good to bring that up. And I think that, you know, when I'm working with my clients and as they start cleaning up their diet, I could say almost overall, it feels to me like when I'm working with them, that after a while, it's almost like they started taking an antidepressant. Hmm. Their thinking gets clearer. Their type of thinking gets more positive. Mm hmm. And the only thing that they changed was what they put in their mouth. But that's a remarkable thing. Remarkable. We we have choices in what we eat. And then I also hear people saying it's terribly expensive to eat right. And I I counter that with I, I don't really believe that to be true. Because at times in my life, I I sort of did experiments on that fact. You Mm -hmm. can eat very reasonably, but it it amounts to what you eat, the portions of what you eat, and how much you prepare in advance. And it just depends on how much effort you're willing to put in. Um, It's funny. There's a, a, a growing group of my friends who do the same thing as I do on Sundays. They take about two hours, and they prepare you know, a a basis for the rest of the week, maybe not the whole meal, but something in advance so that some of those decisions are taken out of your hands when you're tired. We know not to go grocery shopping when we're hungry, but sometimes we also don't want to go take that walk that we would ordinarily take because you've also lost the zeal. So talk about that in terms of Thinking clearer, success breeding success, how to make the mental shifts to get out of your way, and the proactivity of taking control of your health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm thinking like when you're talking about your planning is that if we all did what we felt like in the moment, mm-hmm. there'd be a lot of things we wouldn't be doing. <laughs> That's so true. And so that's a good thing in some cases. Well, but you know, it's like when you're talking about like, if you want to exercise or if you want to get your meals together on Sunday, you're planning it ahead of time so that you're preparing yourself that when you don't feel like it, like your brain says, I'm too tired. Yes. You've already used a different part of your brain on Sunday called your prefrontal cortex. Right. And you thought it through while you can think. That's exactly why I do it, because it's more relaxing on that day. I can think ahead. I can get it done. Because during the week, no, I come home and thank goodness I prepared, or I only have to make a salad. But it's an interesting thing, because, you know, years and years ago, it used to be that Sunday dinner thing with the family. Mm -hmm. And that's very rare these days. But it, I see a number of my friends and their children taking the time to either cook together or to plan the meals together. And it's excellent life coaching for the children to demonstrate, you know, what healthy eating looks like. 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm still thinking uh, a little bit, too, just about the whole idea of planning in general. Okay. That, um, like, when I w- what I hear you say is that if you didn't do your planning on Sunday, during the week, when you come home and you're tired, there's a chance that what your more primitive part of your brain would do is I'd say, oh, let's eat. I know you would never eat McDonald's, but um, no, I'm know, not a like, fast food person, but I might grab a big chunk of cheddar cheese and some pretzels. There you go. I mean, something that felt right. like that's just what I feel like in the moment. Well, that's why I take that away from myself. Or the other alternative I find is that you open and close the refrigerator five or six times because you just don't even know what you want. You are so correct. And so for you, you've got your prefrontal cortex working for you on a regular basis. and you On understand. Sundays, at least. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, enough to take care of yourself during the week and not depend on yourself that when right. you're tired, that you're going to be able to do the right thing for yourself. You take care of it while you can still think. And I True. think this planning thing is so important for people who are first starting out that say it's too much work and they want to be more spontaneous mm-hmm. and they want to be more free. The actual way to be free is by planning ahead of time. It really is. And it doesn't take much effort. Uh, it really does not take the effort. And now it's gotten to be kind of a, a comforting habit because I know that I have nurtured the family for the coming week. And I know that we're going to be eating healthy as opposed to unhealthy. Yeah. And talk about self-love. We, we haven't talked that much about self-care, but it also says a lot about how much you care about yourself and your family and that you feel like you're a priority enough that you would take that time to do it for yourself. Well, it wasn't always that way. I think, you know, as you get older, you do prioritize things differently. And I think that the years where you don't even get the luxury of planning for yourself because you're planning for everyone else. That's why I love this after 40 period, because I think that we do, we're much more conscious of how, how time is so precious. And so to use it wisely is, is, it almost becomes second nature after a while. Um, Like I said, it wasn't always that way, but it's great when it becomes that way. So I'll come back to believing that success breeds future successes and you know you see differences you see leaner body weight you see that you have more energy you want to go on that walk and you you really can do more and I think that's what people want they want to be able to go later in life and go play with the grandchildren in a vigorous manner and enjoy themselves so we're going on our final break and we'll be right back We're Wise Health for Women Radio, and we'll return after these short messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Avoiding air pollution is a good idea at all times, but especially when you exercise. When we work out, it is estimated that we draw in 10 to 20 times more air than when we are still. The New York Times states that if the air is polluted, we get an overdose of toxins. Being exposed to air pollution increases our risk of heart disease, premature death, lung inflammation, and weight gain, just to name a few. If possible, exercise in clean air. Air quality alerts can be caused by ground level ozone levels and particle matter, 
and are usually worse when it's hot and humid. When there is an air quality alert, it is best to exercise indoors or in the early morning. Always follow your doctor's orders, especially if you have asthma, other health conditions, or are elderly. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. It's merging you notice that no matter how carefully you put the Christmas lights away, they still come out all kringle-krangled and jitterty-jitterty the next year. Christmas tree lights were invented in 1882 by Thomas Edison, and by 1900, these miniature versions of his electric light bulb were being advertised to the public. In 1895, Grover Cleveland proudly sponsored the first electrically lit Christmas tree in the White House, featuring more than a hundred multicolored lights. By the next Christmas, members of high society were hosting flambustious Christmas tree parties. Of course, in those early days, the services of a wireman had to be obtained, as many people had considered electricity as a bit of a bugaboo. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back. We were talking on the break about the importance of self-care, which is part of whether you plan, whether you are at the grocery store and you choose uh, healthier options. Uh, whether you choose to take the walk or sit on the couch. Self-care, sometimes people think, is a total luxury and that tomorrow I'll get to that or next week or after my youngest child leaves the house or, 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 or. And if you don't do it today or if you wait until the time is absolutely perfect, you will never do it. Let's talk about some of the things that you recommend to your clients about self-care and why it's important to healthy aging. Love to talk about that. Probably my favorite topic. And here's the thing I think about that is that number one, I don't believe as women we were taught how to take care of ourselves. I think we were taught how to take care of other people. Mm -hmm. I think we were taught how to please other people. I think we were taught how to get approval from other people and we have not, we were never taught to become aligned with what's right for us and how to take care of our own selves. So it almost feels like women almost feel guilty when I talk about this Mm -hmm. and they almost, they'll use words like, isn't that being selfish Mm -hmm. when we're talking about that? And so I think it'd be nice to be able to turn the tables on that a little bit for people to see that self-care, taking care of yourself first is the biggest gift you can give to anybody else that you love. I firmly agree, but I want you to unpack that because people hear the word self-care a lot these days, but what does that look like? Well, let me tell you the first thing that I think it looks like because I think a lot of people will say, oh yeah, well, you know, maybe it's going and getting pedicures or even like for you, like which I love, you know, planning your food ahead of time. But I think the most important thing to begin with self-care is how you talk to yourself. Yes. What you say to yourself on a regular basis, and this is what I find, is that most of the women that I talk to are so hard on themselves. Mm -hmm. And they say the meanest things to themselves, and then they expect positive results from themselves. Nope, the body hears what you tell it. 
The body hears what you tell it. And not only that, you make yourself feel so bad and you think you're doing yourself a service by making yourself feel bad, like you're going to whip yourself into shape. So, you know, we get a lot of, I get a lot of people coming to me in menopause who have been whipped into shape by themselves and it ain't working. (laughs) (laughs) So talk about how people, I think when you say self-care, think, okay, get a massage, take a bath, uh, light a candle, um, wave lavender over your linens. Um, and, and to some people, it seems sort of woo-woo and I don't have time for this or mm-hmm. write an affirmation on the mirror. The funny thing is science shows that all of those things do work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those are, I'm not, I'm not saying that's not self-care, but in order to want to do those things for yourself, mm-hmm. you have to think better of yourself. Right. And you have to say things to yourself. It's like like the way you would talk to your children or somebody that you really care about is you wouldn't say the things to your children if you were trying to help them through a hard time. You wouldn't tell them how terrible and horrible people they are. Well, and that's a, a very strong thing to say to our listeners is that, you know, please be as kind to yourself when you talk to yourself as you are to your dearest friend. Absolutely. And, you know, there's um, a term called self-compassion. And Mm -hmm. I think most of us are very aware of compassion. Right. But I don't think we're as aware of self-compassion that we use that when we can have tenderness for our own suffering. And when we can have tenderness for our own suffering and make ourselves feel better when we're suffering, we actually will take better care of ourselves because we are treating ourselves as if we're worth it, like we would our children. Well, and we are worth it. I, I think, though, some women have been beaten down by whether it's life, um, their jobs, their families, um, their own negative thinking. Yeah. You know, yeah. you can picture all of these things. And and it's very hard to turn that around. Some people have lived very toxic lives. And taking the steps out of toxicity into health, you know, may be a slower process. But please talk about how possible it is. It's possible because what we know about our brains now is that our brains are like plastic. It, they can change by the way that we think. Mm-hmm can be rewired. So if we've been thinking terrible things about ourselves for a while, the idea of self-compassion is that we can become mindful or aware of the things that have been running around in our head, telling ourselves things like we're a fat pig or that we have no control or that there's something terribly wrong with us. Those are just things that we've been thinking that are changeable just by becoming aware that it's just something that we're thinking. And just because we think something doesn't mean we have to believe it. I agree with you, but I'm going to insert something in here that I I, I visualize because it cracks me up. I, I don't know that I've ever been, um, I, there's certainly been times in my life where I was terribly negative about myself, but I also went through a period of time where I felt like there were squirrels in my brain. There yeah. were a million things. And so to tame the squirrels from a herd or whatever of 
I don't know what a group of squirrels is called, uh, a squirrel herd. What we'll call yeah, them that I for now. About. <laughs> yeah, a squirrel bundle, whatever. Um, it tame it down to one nice, calm squirrel eating an acorn. Um, it, it it takes a while sometimes to calm yourself. So you're right in the negativity, but I think some others may identify with what I just described, which is that there's just so many squirrels in your head and you are trying to attend to all of them and you need to prioritize yourself to shoo away the squirrel herd. Yeah. And you know, you can call it whatever you want. I call it the committee. (laughs) Oh, that's a better way. So my squirrel committee, I like that. Yeah. It's gone at this point, but I do remember the years where they were there and I thought, who invited you? (laughs) Right. And that is such a good point is that you actually get to invite who you want Mm -hmm. up into your mind. But first you have to be aware of what's up there. And that maybe just because you think something doesn't make it true is just the beginning of awareness and self-compassion is becoming mindful of what is actually going on in your brain. And if you think something negative about yourself doesn't make it true, you can start questioning it. I do that a lot with people is just going like, are you sure that you absolutely believe that? And as soon as I ask that, they go, well, no, I mean, no, and I'm going like, well, why are you thinking that? But see, you're because- you're helping them recognize what they didn't recognize on their own. And I think that's often the case. You need help from somebody who can tell you that the committee can be disbanded banded, and that it's okay to do that. You're you're back to talking about the tenderness to oneself. Yeah. And and yet I think that sometimes being introspective is uncomfortable for people. Yeah, and just, I think, realizing, too, the, um, I guess the biggest thing about life coaching for me is to be able to teach people to see what they are thinking, mm-hmm. right, and to see how their thoughts are shaping their own realities. Well, perception is reality. Well, perception is reality. I, you and I both agree, but you wouldn't know that by, I mean, a lot of people don't really see that if they think something about themselves on a regular basis, they're going to create a result that's going to reflect that. And it's going to look like it's just reality. Well, look what look what I've got, right? And you always look for evidence for your own thinking, whatever it is. And yet in life, especially later in life, mm-hmm. there are some life-changing things that happen. There, are. Um, there can be divorce. There can be the death of a spouse or someone dear to you. There can be a lot of life shattering things that shake up your thinking and pushing through one of those things while staying healthy is vitally important, but can be much more challenging at that point. And so having a good network of people around you, would you say that associating with others who can help support you and love you unconditionally is a big help along this journey? Oh my gosh, it's a wonderful help along this journey is to be able to have support and, um, you know, like-minded people. Mm -hmm. And I guess more than anything else is to be able to have your own back on your journey is for you to have your own back. It's Mm -hmm. wonderful to have people who support you, Mm -hmm. but if you don't have your own support first. Well, then you can take on others' agendas instead of your own very easily 
very easily. And I think a lot of people do that. I also agree with you that women often overthink. And when they overthink, they're often turning it into negative fiction because the mind spirals. Right. Kind of like making up stories, right? I think, I think we're often very good at that because we are hard on ourselves. Society may be hard on us, but I still think we are the hardest on ourselves. Linda, I couldn't agree with you more. And I guess the biggest lesson is that, you know, if I could teach anybody anything, it would be to learn. And it is something that's learned of how you can talk to yourself in a way that makes you feel like no matter what situation you're in, you've got your own back first. I mean, that you've got your own support, that you're not your worst enemy. I love that. I want to make sure our listeners know where to find out more information about you and the services you offer and more of the philosophy behind your thinking. So what is your website? My website is drdrdebbutler.com. And I know just you also have a very active Facebook group. Um, I have a Facebook page, yeah. Mm-hmm. By the uh, same name, correct? Exactly, the same name. And I also have a podcast. That's right, because I, I, I listened to it this morning. And I think that oftentimes people are unaware of all the resources out there. And this is why we bring such fantastic guests to this show, because there are lots of tools to help you. And so go to drdebbutler.com, Facebook page by the same name, and learn how you can use your thinking, your brain, and nutrition to become exactly the healthy person that you want to be over a period of time with sanity and not doing things that are really difficult for you. Deb, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you and amen. (laughs) Thank you and amen. Wishing everyone a wonderful week. We'll talk to you again next week. And thank you, Dr. Deb Butler. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in today. You can find more shows at wisehealthforwomenradio.com.